So I hope your 4th of July was a good one. We spent the bulk of ours over in uh, Springfield celebrating the birthday of Kason Robert Scott. He turned double digits, so he was 10. Since he was born on the 4th of July, the family calls him Boom. <laughs> it fits, it works. I ask him, do they still call you Boom? He said, oh, Dad does occasionally. Yeah, Boom. I, um, I don't know if the Apostle John, um, you know, had a nickname other than the one that Jesus gave he and his brother, but if he had one, it would be Boom, because he was a feisty little guy, and if you would have caught him in his elementary school days, he would most often be in the principal's office. He would have been there for fighting on the playground at recess. That's the Apostle John. I mean, Jesus even called he and his brother once this label, Boanerges. It means sons of thunder. And probably the reason they got that name is because in Luke 9, on one occasion, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and consume an entire village because they didn't accept Jesus as he was traveling by. Wow. Why was John this way? Well, A, he probably was the youngest Maybe he was a bit spoiled, I don't know. Um, another possibility is he came from a family of means. Mark chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that Zebedee, the father, had not only his boys to entrust the fishing business to, but also some hired men. Was he up the ladder economically just a little bit to think that he could always get his way? But what happened to John? I mean, to move from this fighting little guy with a short fuse to somehow by the end of his life being known as the apostle of love, his handle is the one that Jesus loved. And according to tradition, at least, uh, he lived during the reign of Domitian. And one story we have is that he was placed in a pot of boiling oil and remained unhurt. I don't know if that's true or not. But this tradition seems more the case with John. In his elderly years, they would bring him into the church there at Ephesus or in Asia Minor, and he would say to the people, my little children, love one another. My little children, love one another. How did he move from being a rascal to being transformed in such a way? Well, it's maybe not unlike what we say around here. A disciple is one who follows Jesus and is transformed by Jesus and is on mission with Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ made this kind of difference to turn a rascal into a mature, loving individual. And the little book late in your New Testament labeled 1 John might just give us a clue about how this transformation took place. I'm not sure what to call this book. It's in the section of your New Testament that we refer to as letters, but it's not very letter-like. It doesn't state who it's from. It doesn't state who it's to. Not this typical Pauline, grace, mercy, and truth to you. It's just kind of more like a sermon, more like a devotion. The themes kind of weave their way in and out and around the book. Some scholars suggest it's kind of a circular letter, if it was a letter at all, that went to the churches of Asia Minor. 
But I'll tell you this, it's packed with good stuff for us for these next six weeks. We are going to spend six weeks in the little book of 1 John, this homily, this sermon as it will. And it is packed with good things. I would encourage you, maybe your life group or your home group, small group is like ours. We're kind of dismissed for the summer. We always say we're going to get together. And then life happens. But we don't do very good in the summer. So so maybe this would be a perfect time for you to come into an air-conditioned Bible school classroom and get a little background of this wonderful little piece that we call 1 John. I personally find it difficult to get my arms around this book. Because the themes just kind of like the book of Revelation, kind of revolve and move around. One of the best commentaries, although it's hard to read and it's very old, is one by Robert Law, and the, te- the title of it is Tests of Life. Tests of Life. You want to know if you're a Christian? Read First John. Because there are these three major tests that kind of weave their way in and around all the contents of the book. For instance, Robert Law says there, first of all, is the test of belief belief. Do you believe the right things? There are things to believe that are right, things that believe that are wrong. I was so heartened this week by getting an email from a former student. In fact, his mother comes to church here, and she's in the service right over here, but I'm not going to say any more than that. Anyway, uh, he ministers in Denver. This was heartening to me, is that they said, hey, we're looking for a part-time worship guy in our church here in Denver. Do you have any suggestions? I said, what happened to the other guy? Uh, yeah, well, we parted company because he was believing some things that the church didn't believe. And I thought to myself, finally, a church that's got a little gumption about Bible doctrine. A church that says, no, no, this is what we understand the Bible to teach. So you can't be saying something from the stage as the worship leader if it doesn't match what we understand the word to teach. Wow. So do you believe the right things? The test of belief. The test of righteousness. Do you live the right way? Uh, Do you conform your life to a standard that fits what God wants? And then the last one, the test of love. The test of love. And really, that's going to kind of be our accent as we work our way through 1 John. It's not like the test of belief doesn't matter. It's not like the test of righteousness doesn't matter. But the way we're going to look at this in the next six weeks is kind of through the lens of love. So here's how the series goes. Some of you may know that Cy is on his study break right now. So a few of us are kind of filling in around the edges while he's gone. This week, uh, I want to talk with you about this is love. Next week, you're still stuck with me, this isn't love. And then Aaron Wheeler is going to get up here and talk about we are to be love to people. And then Josh Quaddy will talk with us about sacrifice is love. And then Cy will be back for the last two. He's the senior guy, he gets the best stuff. God is love and truth is love. He'll get to finish the series. But today our theme deals with this idea of love. Let's think about it this way. Take the three great virtues of the Apostle Paul. Take those wonderful marks of maturity that he just deals with in so many of his epistles. Faith, hope, and love. Just put those down and then take John's writings and slap them down over those. I think this will make sense. For instance, what about the issue of faith? Paul says that's a mark of maturing Christian experience. John writes the book of John, the gospel of John. And why does he write it? These signs are written that you might believe. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John's gospel deals with belief or faith. The book of Revelation, while never using the word, the Greek word elpis, translated hope, never appears in the book of Revelation. But it's all over the pages, isn't it? Yeah. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Behold, I make all things new. It's all about our future, all about hope. Well, that leaves then love, faith, Gospel John, hope, book of Revelation, love, first, second, third John, deal with this theme. So how can we look at this wonderful little sermon or homily, if you will, through the lens of love? That's what we want to start unpacking today. From chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 2, verse 4. Let me get it rolling this way. Several of the ladies in the audience will recognize the name, especially if you've been around the Christian conference circuit very long, Betty Gray. Betty Gray is kind of a longtime woman speaker at conferences. She often dresses up in biblical character, you know, and becomes first person, the Ruth or Esther or somebody like that. And even though she's got a lot of candles on her birthday cake, her mind's pretty sharp. And she's still kind of out there on the circuit. Well, she and her husband had a a, a girl named Love. That's the girl's name. Love Lockman is her married name. Love. I think it's kind of a cool name, actually. I always honor uh, Logan and Anna Greer for naming one of their kids Valentine. You can't go wrong with that. So, Love. Well, anyway, years ago, the story is that, that Betty Gray was giving her daughter Love piano lessons. There was a knock at the door. It was a salesman. Betty dismissed herself from the piano, went to open the door, and the salesman said, hello, ma'am, I know I'm here without an appointment, but, and then proceeded to give his spill, but she interrupted him. She said, oh, it's okay, I'm just giving love lessons. I think that guy's still standing on the porch, you know, with a deer in the headlights there. First John, the way we're looking at it is love lessons. What is love is the series for this six weeks. And I guess the first thing we want to say out of the gate is, how about this? The gospel. The gospel message is where the love of God is laid bare for all to see. And that's what he talks about in this chapter. And the two verses that go to the next chapter, he discusses what really love is. Let me just kind of entice you this way. Here's what I think he says. This is love. Jesus came. This is love. God is light. This is love. You're off the hook. And so let's just kind of walk with that label as we go down. You got your Bibles? Got your devices? It'll be on the screen, but you follow along as we read this prologue. It doesn't start out like normally letters do. It's like he's, something's going on here. He's, he's already pushing back. He's already fighting. He's already given an apologetic. Why is he doing this? Chapter 1, verse 1, 1 John. That which was from the beginning. Oh my goodness. That sounds like Genesis. That, that sounds like the gospel of John. That which we have heard See, the gospel places a high priority on your ears. That which we have seen with our eyes, that word see is hara'o. It means to see, perceive, understand, accept. Which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Notice the three senses of your five senses. Sight, hearing, touch. And then he says, concerning the word of life. 
Well, it sounds like an it, doesn't it? The life was made, what? Manifest. Greek word phanerao means to show up, to be made clear. So all of a sudden, this word of life that sounds like a something looks like it becomes a someone. The word of life, and we've seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life. So first it's called the word of life, now it's called eternal life, which was with the Father. This, this word was with the Father, like, like before time and everything, was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship. Ah, oh, there it is. That great Christian word. And by the way, it doesn't mean snacks, okay? It doesn't mean snacks for the Savior, This means a common mind. We will have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Here it comes. Now we know who the Word of life is. Now we know who eternal life is. Jesus Christ. In case we didn't know, that's who He's talking about. And we are writing these things so that our joy, actually some of the manuscripts say, your joy could be made complete. You want to know what love is? I'll tell you what love is. Love is this. Jesus came. Jesus showed up. And you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Why is John arguing? Why does he seem to... Why is he giving an apologetic for Christmas? Why is he underlining the incarnation? Why is he telling us that Jesus Christ had skin in the game and had skin on? Why? Well, because there's some stuff going on in John's day that he had to kind of push back on. That's what's going on. This person that he's talking about was in existence before time. He's called the word of life and eternal life, as we said. Listen, you can tell an awful lot about people by what they take a bullet for, right? What they're willing to die for, what they're willing to stand on over the convictions. And may I just say, the reason John is starting the letter this way is he doesn't want anybody to misunderstand. And it's this, that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. And this church will never, ever, ever compromise that, ever. 21 times, 21 times in the book of 1 John, Jesus is called Son of God. Yeah, John will argue for the full divinity. What's really neat is that in the earliest church, they argued about stuff like this. We argue about, you know, songs and carpet. But they argued about who Jesus is in the early centuries of the church. And they would die on the hill for the fact that he's divine. Except that's not the question here, is it? He used the Son of God 21 times in this book. But the question here is, is Christmas real? The question here is, not his divinity, but his humanity. Did he really come because there was a thinking out there that no, he didn't really come. What happened was he was the natural born child of Mary and Joseph and when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him in a special way and when he was on the cross, the Holy Spirit left. Uh, no, John is saying that is not the case. No, we really saw him, we really heard him, we really touched him. Jesus is real. That's what's going on here. As an old African-American preacher put it this way, he took off the halo of divinity and put it in the wardrobe of eternity and came to us in his own clothes. John is arguing for the full humanity of Jesus Christ. It's like the good book says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's going on here is this. Well, you ever heard of two men in a truck? Two men in a truck? Well, there are two isms in a guy. Okay. 
two isms and a guy in this book. One is what's called, I'm not trying to be too technical, but there's so much here to unpack, dualism. Dualism basically believes that anything that's material is bad. Well, guess what? You're material. We're made of water and dust. Jesus is human, so Jesus must be bad. And John is pushing back on this big time. That's dualism. Then later on, on the horizon, there would be this thing called Gnosticism. And that was where you're not saved by a person like Jesus. You're saved by the special esoteric knowledge. And John is pushing back on this. And it's based on two isms and a guy. Now, who's the guy? The guy, in this case that he's pushing back on anyway, is a fellow named Serentus. And he was a tricky rabbit. Serentus lived at the time of the Apostle John, and he taught what I just mentioned a moment ago, that Jesus was the natural-born child of Mary and Joseph, nothing miraculous there. The Holy Spirit came on him at, at his baptism and then left as he died on the cross. And that's what Serentus was espousing. There is a tradition, I'm not sure how legitimate it is, I should say this, to give Serentus his day in court. We only know about him from his opponents. So, so probably ought to be at least fair. But John had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is the one who tells this story. He says that one day the apostle John was in the bathhouse at Ephesus. I could show you a picture, but it's not very edifying. Anyway, so here's the bathhouse. And John is supposedly in there. I don't know if you accept this story or not. Well, Serenthus comes into the bathhouse. And John just blows a gasket. And says, everybody flee, everybody flee. The bathhouse will come down on us because the false teacher, the heretic, Serenthus, has just entered. Hence, you know, I don't know whether to believe that or not. But, but this I know. John is somehow pushing back on, don't you take away from the humanity of Jesus Christ. What is he claiming here? We know the love of God because Jesus came. Whenever I get the copies of The Lookout that come in the mail to me, I read David Faust's articles. David is such a good writer. My little puny article's on the next page, and I go, why am I even trying? You know, I mean, David just got good stuff. And here are just a few lookouts back. David talked about some of the old spirituals sung by our African-American brothers and sisters in the South in the 1800s. And how that Frederick Douglass was a former slave and talked about the value of these spirituals as dealing with our, not only our human angst, but also the glory that's to come when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. And he gave a few of his favorites. Who doesn't like swing low, sweet chariot? Who doesn't like steal away to Jesus? But David Faust says, one of my favorites, and I would have to agree, is give me Jesus. Give me Jesus in the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, just give me Jesus. And it goes throughout the day, this song does, with the, and finally you get to the last stanza, and it's, and when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, just give me Jesus. I don't know that I can explain to you the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I don't know that I can explain the full significance of Christmas, but John is saying, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, and we testify to this, that the word of life and the eternal life, he's the one who came, and you can have fellowship with God. Here's the love of God. Jesus came. Here's the love of God. God is light. That's the next section. 
Chapter 1, verse 5, down to verse 10. Here's what he says. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. Now watch how many times he says, if we say, if we say, if we say. If we say we have, here's our word, fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And here, verse 9, is the counselor's greatest friend. Oh, dear friends, I needed this verse this last week more than you know. And I don't have time to go into it, and it's not very edifying, so we'll just leave it at that. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, can I get a witness? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Bible has many metaphors that describe God. God is wind. God is fire. Here, God is light. Now, Christianity is not unique because it uses the phrase light. Other religions use the word light to describe their faith. However, in the Bible, light means things like Revelation, understanding, knowledge, moral excellence. So here's the love of God. He's the only pure one in the universe. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Wow. Think of it this way. The brackets to your Bible. How did it start? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was dark and formless and void, and darkness was upon the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters, and God said, let there be light. Uh, Have you ever noticed that's before sun, moon, and stars was created? So what's with that? And then you get to the end of the Bible, the brackets on the other hand, Revelation 22 verse 5, there will be no need for sun, moon, and stars in the new city, for God himself is the light. You won't need a temple, because God is the temple. We just came through as a church the study of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise and shine, your light has come. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. And James 1, 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And Jesus himself said, I am the light. Now, why is John talking this way? Well, the reason he's talking this way is because our world is sin-stained and full of darkness. That come as a real shock to anybody? I mean, there's, there's, I wish I didn't have to say this. There's personal darkness right here. Existential darkness. There's social darkness. There's there's darkness that's that's systemic in systems. There's, dare I say, political darkness. There's sexual darkness. There's philosophical darkness, like what John was fighting. There's theological darkness. Just darkness permeates this thing, and here's part of why we're back to dualism. Because dualism said, all matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus has to be evil. Therefore, what the heck? You might as well just give in the license and do your own thing. And John says, oh, you couldn't be more mistaken. 
No. In fact, he sets up some parallelisms. Verse 6 is parallel to verse 8, which is parallel to verse 10. That's the dark side. Verse 7 and verse 9 are parallel on the light side. And he basically says this, this is the love of God, that darkness is totally dispelled by he who is the light of the world. And darkness is swallowed up by all of this light. I told you we were over at Springfield for the 4th of July. That's Corey's son, our second boy, who's the worship leader over at Northside Christian. They're in route. They stayed overnight with Andy Melton and his family in Nashville last night, church. They're en route to a family vacation down in Georgia. But when Corey was eight years old, he preached his first sermon to the family in a hotel room in St. Louis. So we were gathered there. He was going to have the family thing. And so he got his sermon all done. He said, hey, Dad, I got my sermon done. Could you give me some scriptures? I said, well, son, it usually works the other way. Uh, you know, normally you get the scriptures first, and then you kind of, you know, work out the sermon. I said, what are you going to talk about to us? He said, I'm going to talk about God being the light. Oh, okay. Well, you might look at first, uh, you know, John 1, 5. You might look at John 8, 12. So I gave him some scriptures. He worked on that. So the moment came for his first sermon. He was going to do an object lesson. So he goes over and shuts the blinds get the room totally dark, right? Except we don't stay in hotels like that. They only shut part of the way. Do you stay in hotels like that? That's the ones we can afford. So they, they, they kind of shut part way. A little slither light right there. And then he goes over and turns off the light. He talks to us for a few minutes about darkness. And then in great dramatic flair that only a worship pastor could do, he flips on the light. But God is the light, he says real loud totally cheesy and totally true and it'll still preach so during the Ozark Christian College Creative Arts Academy a few weeks ago I was listening to my co-teaching minister friend Shane Wood and I texted him the next morning I said hey in your good sermon that you preached last night what was that line that you did about light and darkness again? And this is what he texted back. He says, I think I said, <laughs> that's what we preachers do. I think I said, why do we entrust darkness to only things that light can handle? See, see, verse 6, 8, they tell us things here, don't they? You'll lie. You'll make God out to be a liar. You'll be duped. On the other hand, you'll have fellowship if you walk in the light. Your sins will be cleansed by Jesus Christ. And you'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Oh, here's the love of God. Jesus came. Here's the love of God. God is light. One more. This is love. We're off the hook. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children... I'm writing these things to you. Do you know John uses that phrase 10 times in this book? It's like, okay, we get it. He, 10 times he tells them, I'm writing this to you. I'm writing this to you. Most of them are in chapter 2, but he starts with this one here in 2.1, and then he gets to 5.13 and says, I'm writing to you so that you'll know that you're saved. You don't have to wonder if you're saved. There's assurance in salvation. 
I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. What? Can we connect those dots for just a minute? So you won't sin? Let's see. That makes it sound like, since this is Scripture, that Scripture and sin sort of work with each other. Maybe if you want to tweet something, it's this. Uh, more Bible input, less sinning output. Isn't that what you memorized as a kid at vacation Bible school? Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. There is a direct correlation to how much of this book gets in your soul and your moral and ethical behavior. Do not doubt that. I write these things so you won't sin. Wouldn't that be great if we could just stop right there? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Oh, I know our former preacher, Randy Garris, did a study on this when he was in grad school. But this is the only time that John uses parakletos, referring to Jesus. All the other times John uses this, it's about the Holy Spirit. I don't know much distinction you want to make about that, but this is the only... Listen, you and I need a defense attorney, do we not? You and I need somebody from a legal standpoint to to help avert something. And the something is in verse 2. I think 1 John 2.2 is one of the high watermarks of your Bible. I really do. I think it rates up there with Romans 3, 21 to 26. I think it rates up there with 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is a big one. This is love. We're off the hook. How? Because the advocate, sometimes translated counselor, who works through the Holy Spirit... According to Jesus here, he becomes our propitiation. Now, that's a mouthful. Your NIV Bible says sacrifice of atonement. I used to think I knew what happened the day that Jesus died. The older I've gotten, the dumber I've become. I, all these atonement models that are out there by the scholars, oh, it's more this, oh, it's more this, oh, it's more this. I don't know. I'm kind of eclectic. Is it justification? Yup. A court term? Is it? Is it reconciliation, a marriage term? Yup. Is it a market term, redemption? Yup. Is it a temple term, propitiation? Yup. I I think it's all those things. Here's what I think is going on. You don't have to buy this. You can be wrong if you want. I, I just think that probably means John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he's looking at all these visions. He's going, oh my goodness, he's writing this down. As one man said, he's pushing language to the breaking point. It is my opinion that the apostles who wrote our New Testament did the same thing when they looked at Calvary. When they looked at Calvary, he said, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of like court. It's kind of like a marketplace. It's kind of like a marriage couple coming back together when they've been at odds. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when that priest went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled blood on that mercy seat which was over the Ark of the Covenant. It's kind of like somebody taking the rap. It's kind of like somebody averting, covering you, protecting you. That's kind of what this is. So let me just say it this way. I don't know how to articulate the atonement anymore. I used to. I read so much gobbledygook now, I don't know what I believe. But I believe that what verses 2 is telling us is this. Somehow, praise God, the day that Jesus died on Calvary's cross, heaven made it right and we're off the hook. That's all I know to say. That's the love of the gospel. You ever, uh, you ever been bored in church? Don't, don't raise your hand. You've been bored with a sermon. 
my self-esteem couldn't take it. Keep your hand down. Um, in 1865, there was a lady sitting in the choir loft up on the stage. That's a little obvious. She was bored with the sermon. And so she took out a hymnal there in front of her. And that's a book with songs in it. <laughs> took this out, got open to the flyleaf pages where they were blank and started writing some stuff down. The preacher's a bit hacked off at this because he sees she's in the choir loft, for heaven's sake. She's noticeable. And he's kind of disturbed that she's doing this. But she just writes, she's defacing a hymnal. And she's writing away and they conclude the service and Elvina Hall comes up to the pastor, says, um, I was writing during your sermon. He says, yeah, no. I, I confess I wasn't listening to your sermon but I just was meditating on the cross. And um, um, I, just, I, wrote, I, I wrote these words. And the preacher looked at the words. And he went, oh my. You see, the organist from the church that week previous had um, composed a tune, but he didn't have any lyrics for it. And so the, 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 the preacher sort of thought, would these words, would these lyrics from Elvina Hall work with the tune that the organist created? And he put the words next to the tune and they fit hand in glove. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is love. Jesus came and reestablished fellowship with the Father for you. This is love. God is light. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Stop. Let Jesus swallow the darkness. This is love. Sin is bad, but we're off the hook. This morning, after we sing and have a time of communion and offering, and you'll be dismissed, I'm going to stay up here because somebody in this crowd on a warm Sunday morning might want to step to the front and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody might want to pray. Say, pray for me. I've been walking in darkness and I don't want to do it anymore. I'll stay up here and be here for us. Shall we pray? Great lover of our souls and lifter of our heads, we bless you that in the gospel message your love is laid bare for the world to see. Oh Lord, help us embrace it today for Jesus' sake.